Laura, welcome back. Thanks. <laughs> Let's do that again. You Wait, I wasn't ready. Hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, Episode 68. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Before we do that, I wanted to ask that if you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute and rate and review it on iTunes. Just go to whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash iTunes and let me know there what you think of the show. The ratings and especially those reviews truly help your fellow book lovers find the show in iTunes. So thank you for spreading the book love. Today's guest is Laura Tremaine. You may know her as the Hollywood housewife, thanks to her former blog. You may know her as a co-host of the Sorta Awesome podcast, or the host of the podcast, The Smartest Person in the Room. If you know Laura at all, you know she's a devoted reader. I always love to hear her thoughts on what she's reading, even though, or maybe especially because, our taste is not the same. We cover a lot of bookish ground in this episode. We discuss the author Laura thinks is underappreciated, even though he's a huge commercial success. We touch on how competition and insecurity in the reading world are real things. And we cover Judy Bloom, Reese Witherspoon, book clubs, and how plot summaries are the worst. This episode is so much fun. Let's get to it. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Anne. I'm such a fan, and I'm so, so glad to be on this podcast. Oh, well, it is very much mutual, and it's so fun to talk to another podcaster. So, Laura, your podcast is The Smartest Person in the Room. Does it have a subtitle? I feel like it should have a subtitle. It has kind of a tagline, which is, Laura Tremaine is not the smartest person in the room, but she knows who is. Yes, I like that. You, Your podcast has had your Towards the End of Season 2. So we just finished Season 2, which was on religion, which is quite the topic to tackle. And then season one or series one was Hollywood. So we did a nine part series on Hollywood because I live and work in Hollywood. And so it was kind of a natural place to start. And it was super interesting. It's not as fluffy as it sounds. Some of the conversations were really enlightening to what it takes to make our favorite entertainment. And then the, the religion series, of course, is as expected, goes pretty deep, but really, really interesting. And it's just some conversations I really wish that I'd had in the past, in years before. I got to ask a lot of really hard questions. And I think that um, people seem to really enjoy it and appreciate the religion series. And now we're starting some new ideas into 2017. Well, I can't wait to listen in the future. So what I especially love about your podcast and what it says about you as a person is that every guest that comes on your show, you have a question. You ask them at the very end and I'm going to botch the wording. So you know what I'm talking about though, right? Yes. At the end of every single episode, I ask my guest to tell me a book or more than one that has made a great impact on them. Now, listen, this is a purely selfish question on my part. I know. And you own that. And I love what it says about you, that when you're having a conversation with somebody you find interesting or on a topic that you find fascinating, that's how you want to close it out, talking about books. I love it because people have said the most unexpected things. Like we all have had a really deep conversation <laughs> 
And then their book is like, maybe not that, you know what I mean? Or someone that we've had a really hilarious conversation in the Hollywood series will come up with a really thoughtful book that changed their life. And I have a goal that I have not even attempted yet, but I do have a goal that I want to go back and read every guest's book that made an impact on them just because, you know, they usually just choose one book and a person to choose the book, one single book that made an impact on them is like quite a recommendation. You know what I mean? So I feel like I need to read the ones that I haven't already read just to see more into that person and to see more into the world. Laura, has anybody ever asked you that question? Have you thought about what you would choose for your one book that it has made a big impact on you? My favorite book as a child and for years and years and years was Judy Bloom's book starring Sally J. Friedman as herself. I have to point back to that book and I did not think I was going to talk about Judy Bloom today, but although of course she has been an influence on millions of little girls, that book in particular, which is not one of her most popular ones, but that I think is the book that made me want to be a writer because I saw so much of myself in Sally J. Friedman, who was a little Jewish girl in New Jersey. And if Judy Bloom can like really connect people like that with their characters to real little girls, I, I was like, I want to do that. Even though I don't write fiction or do any anything like that, I think it's what really plunged me into the literary world. How old were you then? Maybe seven or eight. I started reading when I was really young and have always read things that were maybe older than me, which, which we'll talk about later. <laughs> um, so I'm not even sure, but I reread that book. I mean, throughout all of elementary school, even when I was much too old for it, I returned to that character and that family. Did reading remain a love of yours as you grew up? Yes. I've always been a huge reader. I am the youngest in my family and my siblings are much older. They're 10 and eight years older than I am. And so my parents at their time in their life where they just had like one little one, they just would drag me around to everything. I mean, I had to go to all the things. And so I always just had a book with me starting when I was really little. And I just read and read and read. I'm also a really pretty severe introvert. And so reading has been my escape. Like if I just needed to like close down the world, still to this day, I read. Do you remember the moment when you knew that when you were talking to other interesting people, you had to talk to them about books? I feel like I haven't always talked about books, actually. Even though I've been a reader my whole life, I was probably in high school before I started to have meaningful literary conversations. Like I don't have a lot of memories as a child talking about books. I was not reading a lot of the same things that my friends were reading when I was young. And my parents put no restrictions on what I read. And so of course I was reading maybe Sweet Valley High or The Babysitter's Club or some of the things that were really popular, but I was also reading a lot of other more adult stuff when I was a young child that clearly none of my friend's parents were letting them read. And so I don't even remember talking about it with people very often until I got to high school and then college where there was literary analysis that I kind of connected to. But then again, I went through a long phase of my life where I didn't talk about books much with people, maybe on the internet, but I didn't seek out, I, I still to this day, don't seek out a lot of book reviews or anything like that. I hate 
plot summary. I hate reading other, I really even don't like reading other people's deep thoughts on a book. I really like to go into a book totally blind and see how I feel about it. It wasn't until I was in my late twenties and started a real life book club that I found a joy in talking about books with others. For most of my life, my reading has been totally in my mind, both the consuming of it and the thinking about it after. I I haven't always derived a huge joy of talking about it with others. Tell us about starting that book club. It sounds like you were the one making that happen. I was. I was in a time in my life, I was newly married. I was in LA. I um, had quit my job for all kinds of complicated reasons. And I was really lonely. (laughs) LA is a hard place to make women friends. You know, I didn't have kids yet. I didn't have like kind of this immediate bonding way to, to meet people or get to know them. And so spontaneously at a birthday dinner, my birthday dinner, I looked at a girl who was across the table who was kind of a new friend actually. And she and I started talking about some books. And I just like at that moment decided to start a book club. I invited another friend who invited her friends. We came kind of a group of five and then grew to a group of seven. And I'll tell you right now that that real life book club kind of saved my life. Like meeting with women who were smart and like to read. We were not all like-minded. We were on the total range of political and religious ideas and that kind of thing, which actually made for great discussion. But we were, you know, thoughtful women around the same age. Meeting together once a month became like kind of a saving grace for me because then I had a baby. Like I just felt really isolated during that time. And so the book club, although we would talk about book, the book we'd read for maybe 30 minutes, we would then go on to talk about life and Mm -hmm love and our families and whatever for another three hours. And that just like filled me up because otherwise I would have just been by myself in my house with a baby and the internet. And that's not a good combination. That's amazing. Of course, I want to ask about what you're reading in, in this book club and in your reading life, but you know how this works. We have a way to do that here. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you hate, and what you've been reading lately, and then we'll talk about what you should read next. I can't wait to hear your picks because I'm always so interested in hearing what you're reading, either on your own podcast or on Sorta Awesome. And I know we have different tastes, and we are, I'm just so excited about diving into that. Okay, let's start with your favorites. Tell me three books you love. One of my favorite books of all time is It by Stephen King. Tell us more. Okay, this book is a horror book. (laughs) (laughs) That that's honestly, that's all I know about it. I genuinely like in my deep heart, believe that Stephen King is one of the best storytellers that has ever lived. I truly believe that college students in the future will be studying him, you know, like we study Edgar Allan Poe or, or anyone it, he is absolutely masterful. And I think that really good readers often stay away from him because his material is so dark and scary. It is one of the scariest ones. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even going to minimize that. I mean, it's about children and a monster that looks like a clown that lives in the sewer. Like it's really scary. (laughs) And 
I think I love it because now I read it when I was a kid. That's the catch. And I, and it's about kids who kind of fight with this monster clown. (laughs) (laughs) When I was really young, you guys, I started reading this in the fourth grade, which is absolutely absurd. And I do not recommend to anyone. However, recently I have gone back and read the opening scene and and I will just tell you this, this is no spoiler or anything. The opening scene is a little boy who's chasing his little boat that he made down the street that's kind of flooded. It's like in, the gutters are flooded and his boat is floating down it and this little boy is chasing it. You can read that scene and realize immediately that Stephen King is on a different level. He is absolutely such a good writer and I don't think he gets the accolades that he should simply because he writes the scary stuff. It is not for everybody. It's scary. It's graphic. It's just not going to be for everybody. It's my, it's my personal favorite Stephen King, but there are others that you could start with if you weren't so into horror, like 11, 63, which I think is an excellent work of his, but also the stand is kind of a post-apocalyptic, but not necessarily horror there. And if you are, if you're okay with dipping into horror, then, you know, the shining (laughs) is excellent. Carrie, of course. I mean, he's just written so many famously wonderful things. Have you read any Stephen King? I've read two. I've read 112263 and I've read his memoir on writing. And I thought they were both (gasps) terrific. I'm debating reading The Stand because I keep hearing it's amazing, although it's intimidating because it's forever and ever long. And it sounds like I could hack it. His stuff is a lot. It's and they're long usually. So Stephen King is most of the time a commitment read, but so good. And I, I sing Stephen King's praises all over the internet all the time. And I don't think I've converted very many people, but <laughs> I'm just here to say he is absolutely one of the best living writers ever living is my opinion. So that's my, that's my big endorsement right now is, is Stephen King. <laughs> I like it. Laura, what's book two? Okay. Book two is another book I can't stop talking about that is I don't want to say more approachable because it is also dark. My my tastes run pretty dark, but it's a memoir. It's called The Sound of Gravel by Ruth Wariner. I guess it's technically a faith memoir. Ruth Wariner grew up in kind of a compound or commune or community, depending on how you're looking at it, in Mexico. And she was the 42nd child of her father. It is a fundamentalist Mormon sect. They have fled the United States, although they're American, and live in Mexico. And that is how she grew up with siblings and her mom, which was, of course, one of uh, multiple wives. This memoir is absolutely stunning. And not just because the premise is obviously very extreme, right? So the premise kind of pulls you in because what... (laughs) (laughs) But then when you're reading it, there's not so much about the author's dad. Um, There is a lot about the relationship with the mother and daughter and and the author and her siblings. It's not like a sensationalist religious thing, even though it has this backdrop. It's so much about relationship. And so that's why I really connected to it. I love memoir. 
I don't read faith memoir as much. I love all kinds of different memoirs as long as they're done well. And this one just struck me. The ending is very harsh. I will say there, there is a harsh ending, but just relationally and, um, the writing is not too fluffy. Like I just, I just thought it was just so solid when I was done. I literally like stumbled around. Like I was like in a daze, like it was one of those books where you're like, I can't believe that book. (laughs) I'm telling everyone to read it. I, it was, it was in my top two of all of 2016. It's so good. Okay. So you said you haven't had much luck on the Stephen King campaign. Are people reading the sound of gravel? People are reading The Sound of Gravel. Um, I talked about it on the Sort of Awesome podcast at the end of last year. I've written about it in my secret posts. I send out an email once a month that kind of is what I'm reading, what I'm doing, recommendation type of thing. And a lot of people have purchased and read The Sound of Gravel. And I tend to get messages back with like, oh, my God, emojis. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It is a really powerful, really powerful book that um, if you are a memoir lover, you're, you have to put this one on your list. Laura, what's book three? Book three is a little bit more of a, you know, run of the mill, not as extreme as Stephen King or religious extremism. It's um, a little more approachable novel. It's called Flight Behavior by Barbara Kingsolver. It's several years old. I bought it on some kind of Kindle flash sale. I only bought it because I love Barbara Kingsolver. The Poisonwood Bible is an, you know, on one of my all-time favorites list. And so I bought it. I started it one night as a palate cleanser. Like I don't, I don't even know what I had finished, but I was like, oh, I just need to like start something. So I opened it up on my Kindle and I couldn't put it down. It's just an example of a really great novel. Of course, Barbara Kingsolver is like, such an excellent storyteller, but I've, I really liked the main character. She's a very smart person who has kind of gotten stuck in her small town. And then a big event happens, kind of a world, a big world event kind of happens that brings a lot of eyes to her really tiny small town. And in fact, to her backyard. And I just thought it was very well told. I learned something and I'm going to say this and I hope it doesn't turn people off. It actually there's a lot of stuff about climate change in this book. However, the way that Kingsolver sort of presents this thing that is happening in the character's backyard, it just was so relatable. And I, I really like books where you're learning something passively mm-hmm. because I was in it for the character and her, and her family, but I was kind of learning these things on the side. I do feel like um, at the end, King Solver does a few monologues that I maybe could have done without. However, it does not take away from the strength of this book and just a really well-told story. Now I'm trying really hard to remember what those monologues would have been like, because I read this when it first came out, which is felt like a while now. Isn't, I, I feel like the world is ready for another Barbara Kingsolver book now, because that is her last one, right? Uh, I think that might have been her last one. I think that one was 2013. So yeah, it's been a few years. She's just so excellent. I really, I haven't read her entire work, but I wouldn't mind being a Barbara Kingsolver completist. That could be life goals. Laura, when you emailed me, I noticed you didn't use the word hate. You wanted to talk about the book you didn't love. What is that title? 
Well, I will say a word about hate. I am very hesitant to um, speak negatively about books that I didn't enjoy, like publicly, I mean. And I know that that's not doing anyone any favors to only have positive reviews out there because when other readers are coming towards a, a book, they kind of want to see what people honestly felt. But I have struggled for a long time with giving poor ratings or writing negatively on my blog or anywhere else about a book. I think just because even, even bad books were a lot of work for someone. And it's just so hard for me to like knock their art. Like I tend to, and I've actually gotten criticism um, from followers of my blog or podcast. I've gotten criticism from people who have said like, again, that I'm not really doing any favors by not giving honest thoughts on something. Like I, I tend to not, like if I'm reading a book and I don't like it, I just like, it kind of just like disappears. <laughs> like I just don't rate <laughs> it anywhere, but I'm gearing up and I'm going to talk about some books that I did not love. So a book I'm reading it actually right now, like at this moment and am so disturbed by it. It's all the ugly and wonderful things by Bryn Greenwood. I am so bothered by the central relationship in this story. Not that I haven't read books where there are inappropriate relationships, like both illegal and inappropriate and dark and bothersome. Like I've read lots of books with that as a plot line. So I don't even know why this story is bothering me so much. I actually posted in a literary group, the sort of literary group, um, that I was bothered by it. And someone said, like, the author wants you to be like, that's the whole point. You're, you're doing it. But to me, I was I'm bothered to the point that I think I'm going to have to put it down. I'm really just not. I'm really not enjoying it. But I am apparently in the minority because it won like the Goodreads Award and Book of the Month Club gave it their like, highest honor chosen by readers. Like, so I'm obviously in the minority here, but that book is, is disturbing. Okay. So I'm going to take a stab at describing this without going all plot summary. Can we call it like Lolita meets Breaking Bad? Does that work? That is a perfect description. Lolita meets Breaking Bad of this book. Yes. Okay, so uh, I read this this summer, and I completely relate with what you're saying about it being disturbing. So much so, a friend texted me and said, what are you reading now? And I said, all the ugly and wonderful things. And she said, what do you think? And I said, I think you should read it. I think she said, a publicist, has, this is an author, has been hounding me to read it, and I, I think I might. And I said, oh, do, because then we can talk about it. Then she took a picture of it and tagged me on Instagram and said, when a friend tells you, to read a book, you read the book. And I texted her, I said, can you please take my name off that? Because I have like, I definitely want to talk to you about it. However, like, I don't want people to see that and be like, Oh, Anne Bogle loves this because I had very complicated feelings about that book. I thought it was very well done. Uh, because Bryn Greenwood makes you feel sympathy for what sounds on the surface, like something that is just black and white, like that relationship is not okay. But then she works for it and you're going, Oh, and then you're like, Oh, I'm feeling, Oh, like what has she done to my emotions and my rational brain and disturbing. I hear you on disturbing. I mean, I do think it's very well written. I don't have a problem with, um, 
with her writing, which is very strong. One of the things that's bothering me about it, which might make it sort of okay for other people, is that um, both characters in the central inappropriate relationship are struggling mentally. So one is portrayed as as being very delayed in in his development, and the other one maybe has some kind of trauma associated with her or something. So anyway, they're they're not fully functioning. They're not they're not functioning at full capacity in a way that would make this issue incredibly black and white for me. So because in some ways you can see that they found each other, right? Like through their struggles and their emotional difficulties, but still I just I cannot get on board with it. Oh Okay, yeah, that's it's it's been six months for me, and that's making me a little cringy. Laura, what are you reading now? I just finished. I was on vacation recently, and I just finished two books that I cannot say enough about. The first one is the third book in Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan novels. It's called Those Who Leave and Those Who Stay. Mm-hmm. It's been my favorite of these novels. I think these are amazing beautiful classic literature. And I loved that third one, especially. And then I also read and was completely surprised by Elizabeth Strout's book, My Name is Lucy Barton. Mm -hmm. I I had not read her before. I know Olive Kittredge was really popular and I don't know why I never picked it up. But um, My Name is Lucy Barton is very spare, very short and very excellent. Laura, is there anything you want to be different in your reading life? You know, I was thinking about this question and the first thing that came to mind was I feel a little bit like sharing what we read online so much, which is a joy. Of course it is. It's also made me feel a little bit competitive and I don't like that Mm -hmm. feeling in my reading world. I don't want to feel like I'm not reading enough or I'm not reading the right things Or, you know, people so often like humble brag about how many books they've read this week, this month, this year. And it kind of makes me feel like I can't keep up. This is my own issue, not anyone else's. But I don't like that energy being infused in like one of my favorite things in the world, which is reading. I don't want to feel like competitive or weird about it. So I'm trying now to find a little bit of a balance between being involved in talking about what I'm reading online and, and being in conversations of other people talking about what they're reading and not, and not feeling like anything I'm doing reading wise is not enough. Okay. So we need books for you that are compelling enough. You want to read them for your own sake, not so you can talk about them on the internet. Yes, exactly. You nailed it. All right. We'll see what we can do. Laura, I have ideas for you and we will get to them right after the break. Laura, welcome back. I have ideas for you, but I'm also a little, hmm, you're going to have to tell me what you want specifically more of on your reading list. I love your ideas. So I can't wait to hear what you, what you think I should be reading. Okay. Well, I just know I'm going dark. I feel like I have a good handle on what you like. It just, the, the flavor is a little different than what I gravitate towards myself, which is super fun to recommend. You like good substantial fiction, a dark side does not hurt anything and you want it to be good and well done. Fair? Yes. Yes, totally. 
First of all, if you just read and loved My Name is Lucy Barton, I mentioned this in episode 65, I think, with Graylin. Elizabeth Strout has a new short story collection coming out. The publication date is April 25th. It's called Anything is Possible, and it's stories set in Lucy Barton's hometown. So you have the same constellation of characters. You're seeing it from all these different angles. It's wonderful. Your um, your description of Lucy Barton was so perfect that I'm just going to leave this very minimalist. It's sparse. It's spare. Yet there's so much emotion going on beneath the surface. It's really excellent. April 25th. Oh, I'm definitely, I'm definitely buying that. I was all in on Lucy Barton, especially her childhood world. So if that's where the stories are coming from, I, that is on my list for sure. When I read the description of what anything is possible was like, I was like, is this a good idea? It, it's a good idea. It really works. Okay. Oh, I can't to, wait. I can't wait. That's such a good one. On to your first real pick. It is Exit West by Mohsin Hamid. So you may know him from The Reluctant Fundamentalist and How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, which I've never read, but it's such an awesome title. Okay. Oh, I know that title. I haven't read it, but it's such an awesome title. You're right. Okay. So do you know anything about Exit West? No. Okay. You're about to because this is going to be a March book of the month pick. So coming tomorrow. And... Here's why I like it for you. You didn't talk about the Underground Railroad today, but I've heard you express your deep and abiding love for that book before. And this reminds me so much of it, even though it takes place in a different time and place than the American Civil War. So we have a young couple named Nadia and Saeed. So of course, I can't stop thinking of Lost, who are in a country we're never given the name of, it, which it doesn't really matter. It's in a country that's very violent. There's a revolution underway. There's a militias and government troops and the streets are unsafe and the characters make reference to seeing uh, like creaky robots in the sky which are military planes but they find each other in the midst of this war-torn country and they attempt to find a way out so the reason I like this for Colson Whitehead fans and especially fans of the Underground Railroad is it's a love story said in a war-torn country that throws in this crazy weird element, which is that Saeed and Nadia have discovered that occasionally when you open a door, it takes you to San Francisco or Bengali or someplace oh. completely different where you can escape. So you have this intense story about love and war and loss and family. And then you have this very jarring element that um, just works for me, on the same level as the actual physical train in the Underground Railroad. How does that sound to you? That sounds exactly up my alley, like everything that you're saying, like the darkness, but then with kind of maybe a fantastical element on the side. <laughs> I love that. Okay, so I didn't love how I am not the dark reader. I want people to get their happy endings. This is not a happy book. It is extremely bittersweet, but it's really interesting. And I think it fits right in your wheelhouse. It sounds like it does. That will be my March book of the month pick, I think for sure. All right. I can't wait to hear what you think about that. Okay. Book two. I feel like surely you've already read this, but I just read it. So it's on my personal radar and I associate you with a certain book by, is it Dave Cullen who wrote Columbine? Yes, absolutely. He has a new one coming out. Is it that? No. Have you read Sue Klebold's memoir, A Mother's Reckoning? 
Oh, no, I have not. I have stayed away from that book, even though Columbine by Dave Cullen is one of the most important books I've ever read in my reading life. It has changed the way that I view the media after tragic events. It has changed the way I view people's own recollection. I cannot say enough about Columbine, but Sue Klebold's memoir, it just seems so hard. I hear you on that. And it sat on my shelf for at least a year before I read it for that reason. And I still haven't read Columbine, but they did work together to write this. He helped her reconstruct a lot of things and checked it for accuracy. And just reading her memoir, now I'm starting to get more of a grasp on why people say how Columbine changed the way that is generally understood these kinds of events should be recorded and people's experiences and how slowly what actually happened emerges. So I, I talked to a lot of people who read it and was told it's not like an easy read, but it's maybe not going to gut you in the way you fear. Really, really interesting. I was very weepy for the first chapter. And then I found like, okay, we knew each other. We were acclimated, you know, the author and I, I, I felt like I felt like we understood each other. At least one of us understood the other. And I could sink into what she was saying. What I like about this for you is I know how much you like memoir. And this one has such an, a different perspective than most. It's so clear she's writing this because she feels like it's, it's what she can offer. Is it a cautionary tale? Not yes and no. She does say, and this is definitely, I, th I think, one of her like key missions in writing the book. And that really, this book is like, it feels like um, penance. It feels like duty. It feels like she's carrying it out in almost a sacred way. Like, this is my story and it is awful, but I, the world could learn from it. And she, I think she takes that obligation very seriously and she's very careful in what she says. And you can hear her being careful. She wants you to know she's being very careful in what she says. She does say things like, we were flabbergasted. Everybody was. Um, if, if everyone doesn't know, she's the mother of one of the perpetrators of Columbine. She does say, there were warning signs. They were subtle. They're often subtle. We had no idea. And one of her big goals is to educate people to see that tiny signs and she says that it's not always as obvious that you would as you would think so just like a, how a change in behavior and not eating dinner is a big red flag depending on the kid or or the adult she talks about all ages and suicide prevention but her her tone is so different from any other memoir i've read i it's like she really feels like she has a duty that she needs to carry out and she needs to do it mm. really well and you can just really feel that in the story. If you're up for it, I think it sounds like something you would be interested in. I do feel like I should read it following Columbine, the book, because it just seems like, you know, it would kind of almost complete the circle in a way of understanding this really horrible thing. And I did read somewhere and you can confirm this or not. She's not profiting from the book in any way. All the profits go towards an organization, right? So it's... Yes, I have it right here. And she says, all author profits from the book will be donated to research and to charitable organizations focusing on mental health issues. And she does talk about that over and over in the book about mental health and brain health and how 
how the warning signs are not what you think they are and that it would be better for the world if we all could recognize them a little better. Ooh, okay. It's a, that's a challenge for me, but I, I'm hearing what you're saying about it. And for my own, you know, sort of personal interest on this tragedy and the reporting on this tragedy, I do, I think I should. Okay. I have a question for you before we do book three. Okay. Do you want one by, in broad strokes, we'll call this the, uh, I don't know, contemporary Australian outback ton of French. Or do you want the one whose official marketing hashtag is WTF that ending? You choose. I'm kind of leaning towards the Australian Tana French. All right, you got it. Book three is The Dry by Jane Harper. The Dry? The Dry. Have you heard of it? Oh, no. oh, oh. You know what I forgot is Reese Witherspoon has already bought these movie rights. And somehow that seems like a checkbox in the Laura Tremaine column. That is definitely a checkbox for me, for sure. Okay. And I always forget this is a debut novel because it's so good. Okay. So this is also another small town novel, which I like for you. So I'm not going to tell you too much about the plot because you don't like that and I don't either usually. But the premise here is intriguing. We have an Australian federal agent, Falk, who comes back to his hometown to attend the funeral of his best friend, Luke. And the reason he's there is because he got a letter in the mail from Luke's dad that said about that thing that happened 20 years ago. I don't remember. It's exactly 20, but it's been a couple decades. I know Luke lied. I know you lied. You need to come back. So they were all involved in something that happened a long time ago that had been kind of quietly put to bed. But some people know that the official story was manufactured. So this federal agent comes back to town among his old people and his old girlfriend and his old best friend whose whole family, uh, they, they all died in the same house in an incident that looks like an open and shut case for the police, but there are suspicions that his best friend could not have done what he seems to have done. So you start, you know, digging it, what's been happening, what happened back then. And you have the two unfolding stories of what's going on right now, because, Aaron Falk is trying to solve his friend's crime. And then you're also finding out what happened that they were all involved in many years ago. So what I like about this is it's got this kind of gently creepy, but definitely creepy, moody Australian thing. Oh, and the reason it's called the dry is because they're in the midst of the worst drought of the century. So everyone is in this farmland where they're depending on water for their like literal survival. Um, it feels hot and oppressive and bare. And I mean, the whole book just feels thirsty and it does so much for the tone. I was really impressed with how much you change the weather and you change the whole tone of the book. It's got great atmosphere. I can totally see this on the big screen. It makes me happy that Reese has rights to it. I don't know if it's in production, but she did buy up the rights and this just came out January 10th. So she bought it before it even hit the shelves. How does that sound? I will go buy that one right now. That sounds Everything that you have said sounds exactly like the type of book I love. <laughs> well, I can't wait to hear what you think. Laura, of those three titles, what do you think you'll read next? The Dry. Awesome. Can't wait to hear about it. I will put it on social media and tag you <laughs> with exactly what I felt, provided it's not negative. <laughs> but no pressure to any of the other readers, of course, right? Because reading is not a competitive sport. That's exactly right. Thank exactly. you for saying that. 
Well, thanks so much for coming on today. This has been fun. So fun. Thank you, Anne. Hey, readers. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Laura today. Head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Laura and to let her know what you thought of my recommendations. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 68, and it's also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Thanks again to PrepDish for sponsoring today's episode. You can try PrepDish and you can do it for free because PrepDish's founder, Allison, is giving What Should I Read Next listeners a totally free two-week trial. To get started and get this amazing deal, go to PrepDish.com slash read next. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next? To be the first to hear about upcoming guests and more fun behind the scenes, What Should I Read Next news, make sure you're getting our newsletter. Sign up at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.